0: gets a little worse and a little worse and a little worse until it culminates in the tenth plague, the plague of the firstborn. What that meant was God passed through Egypt, and the firstborn in every household, including the cattle, the animals, the firstborn of everything, died that night. Now, to understand, just going to give you a quick picture, what this would look like in the Barnes household, I would have died that night because I'm the firstborn in my family, and Caleb, my oldest son, would have died that night. Every household in Egypt experienced death on this night. Terrible, terrible, hard night for the Egyptian people. Yet when God came to the part of Egypt where the Israelites lived, no death. No one died. Why is that? You're like, well, because God knew where the Israelites lived. Duh. No, it wasn't because he knew where they lived. God had given them instructions on how to stay alive. And you know what the Israelites did? First, they believed God and said, ooh, we hear this, we don't want that to happen. Secondly, they obeyed God. They did what God told them to do. So when you believe God and you do what God calls you you to do or tells you to do, then you live. Now here's what they were told to do. They were told to take a year-old lamb, a male lamb. That wasn't gimpy or maimed in any way. It was clean. It was, it was a healthy lamb. Perfect, spotless, without blemish is how it was described. They were to take this lamb and they were to kill it and catch some of its blood. And then they were to eat this lamb. And they were to eat this lamb dressed like they were ready for a long journey. You know how when you get ready to go somewhere on a trip, you wear comfortable short shirt. Shoes. You know, you're okay. I'm lounging. This is my travel attire. Well, they were going to take a long, long trip, and they were told to eat like they were ready for a trip because tomorrow they were going to leave on a long trip. They were leaving Egypt, heading to the Promised Land. Not only did they eat this firstborn lamb with this blood they collected, they were told to take a hyssop branch. It's a branch from a small tree. They were told to take and dip this branch in the blood, and they were to apply some of that to the side of their door frames that coming into their home to the sides and across the top. So you're dipping this blood and putting it in there. And as God came through Egypt that night bringing death to the firstborn, when he came to a doorway that had the blood applied to it, he passed over that house. It's called the Passover. Now let me ask you something. If God gave you this instruction and said, this is what's going to happen, here's what you, what, you, what you need to do to live, do you think you would have obeyed that if you believe God, you would have. I mean I'm telling you, if that's me getting the instruction, my door would look like a preschooler painted it. All right? I mean I got blood. I'm it on just dripping off the side and running down, pulled up. Lord, I'm here. Don't this we got it. We got the memo. We're covered. All right. Please this woo hoo woohoo. Yes, red door frame. Red door frame. We're good. All right? We are in line. So the people obeyed God and they lived. Get the God to understand this. This was the single greatest moment in Israelite history. Nothing like it unparalleled in all of their journey and all of their experiences with God the Passover. And God told them every year you are to celebrate Passover. You're to have this feast. You're to have this celebration. And remember what I did for you. Remember all that I told you. Tell your children about what I did for you and through you that night. And so the Israelites did. And unfortunately, because they were slow learners like we all are, they didn't get this whole thing about when you disobey God, you wind up in slavery and oppression. And so they wound up back in slavery and oppression in the future. And so every year when Passover would come, many of those years, they're underneath the slavery and oppression of another land, and they would say, kids, let's tell you what God did. You're not going to. It's awesome. It's wonderful. Let, let's talk about the stories, and let's remember the significance. And you know what God has said? God said he'll deliver us. He's going to send a Messiah. He's going to send another Deliverer to give us freedom, to set us free once again. He's coming one day, children. And year after year after year, they spoke of this one who was coming. And here's the thing. The Bible says that the Messiah was going to be one greater than Moses. You go, ooh. Moses led the Passover, the Messiah is going to be greater than Moses. And here's the thing, if this is the Passover that Moses led, and the Messiah is greater than Moses, then our Passover, our deliverance, is going to be greater than that Passover. Can you believe it? Greater than Moses, a greater Passover. And so here in John chapter 12, the people during the Passover celebration... Are like it's now, it's the time. He's here. It's Jesus. He's the Messiah, the greater, than, the one greater than Moses. It's our time, and Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. They're like, oh, the potential we see, all these, we just imagine what it's going to be like, and it's going to be great. And you're like, Curtis, how do you know that? We just read nine words. Well, we know that. Because of what the text teaches. And this crowd, why, why would they think Jesus is the Messiah? Well, two things. One, they had heard just in general about Jesus preaching his teaching, his miracles. And people who had heard him preach and teach were like, oh, you're not going to believe what he said. People who had been healed were like, I was healed. People who knew those who had been healed were like, I knew this dude. He lived right next door to me, and I knew the condition he had. He couldn't walk. He couldn't hear. He couldn't see. And now He can. Jesus did that for him. I saw it with my own eyes. So they had that in general. But secondly, there had been a very specific thing that had taken place just a few days or a few weeks earlier. We don't know the real time frame, but it's not more than a few weeks earlier. Back in John chapter 11, something really spectacular had happened. Look in verse 17. It says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. These are the people that had seen Jesus resurrect Lazarus from the dead and there, they're there going, I don't care what you've heard, but let me tell you what I saw and it beats them all. You're not going to believe what took place. I was there. I saw it. I heard it. I talked to Lazarus after he had died. So they're there just, you know, telling everybody what Jesus has done. And verse 18 says, The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. And here's the cool thing they're expecting what? A Passover greater than the first Passover. Well, that's pretty incredible when God comes to your door and he passes over and you don't experience death. In their mind, they're thinking along these lines Dude, he died and he's living again? That's way better. That's way better. The first time you didn't die when God came through, but you experienced it later, your life was over. With Jesus as the Messiah, you can die and live again. Oh, dude, Whoop whoop! put me on the Jesus train. You know, I, I'm there, I, I am with him. And so Jesus comes in to this climate, this atmosphere. Verse 13, let, let's get to our first words. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Now the palm branches they're having a parade here. Roman emperors would go lead military campaigns when they came back, the people met them with parades, waving cloth and different things and, and branches and different stuff. and they're saying to the Emperor, "Thank you for leading us. We trust you, we'll follow you. We know that you are taking care of us, so we'll follow your leadership. Because because of the benefit to us, so that's what the people are saying to Jesus. Jesus, will follow you. Tell us what to do. We are with you. The palm branches show that they were poor people; they couldn't afford all the other stuff, so they're like cutting, you know, branches off trees, waving those, also indicating that they were expecting and hoping. And the potential they saw within Jesus was that Jesus is going to set us free. He's going to liberate us and give us prosperity. We're going to have some money. Because we're not going to be the slaves and the poor people anymore. Because Jesus is going to set us free. So there's this parade. And they're waving these palm branches. And look at what it says. It says they were crying out, Hosanna. And there's your first word, Hosanna. And we look at it and go, didn't he say this was an exciting thing? They said, Hosanna. I don't know what that means. Hosanna means save. Jesus is coming into town. And the people are going, save. Save. Save us. Save us now. We're ready. They've got this expectation, this hope. They see the potential of Jesus because of all they've heard that he's the Messiah. We believe in you. We'll follow you. Start the rebellion. Let's revolt against the Romans. We will follow you wherever. We believe that you will protect us, you'll provide for us, you'll lead us to victory. And you know what? Even if we die in the process, we know that you can bring us back to life. We're with you. Save, save us now. They said they saw the potential of Jesus as their Messiah. And now you may be looking at it going, does it really say all that? Is is he picking all this up from just these few words we're looking at? Well, look on with me to see that, yeah, this was in their mind. They go out and say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now from the Passover, who did they expect was going to send the Messiah? God. God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're coming from God, the Messiah, on his behalf. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But how? How's the Messiah? What's their expectation of the methodology of how the Messiah is going to set them free? They totally reveal it. Even the... Are you reading along? Even the king of Israel. God sent one, Jesus, you're him... We crown you King of Israel. That's the second word right there. They were looking to Jesus as a political king. Set us free. Give us our new, better, greater Passover. We want to be a great and powerful nation. And Jesus, we know that you have the potential. You have the power to lead us to that place. We will follow you. But here's the thing. Here's where it begins to split off a bit. Their idea of Jesus' potential and what he was going to do, what he had come to do, didn't match God's plan, God's purposes, or God's design. What do you do when that happens? What happens when your plan, your idea, your thoughts, the the potential that you see isn't the same as God? What do you do when the path that you're on, you're like, this stinks. You ever been in that place? God, I can see the end. This is a good thing. I want to be there. And in your mind, you imagine this is the way we'll go, and it's nice, and it's easy, and it's simple, and it's soft, and and we're going to get there. And God takes you over here, and you're like, what is this? I don't like this path. I wanted that path. What happens when those two don't mesh? What are you going to do? We're going to look at that over the next eight weeks. But I want you to see there's, there's some clues. here. I want to see this one particular clue given, even in this mob of people, that reveals if they had just been paying attention that God's plan was different than their thoughts. It says in verse 14, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. This is a prophecy about the Messiah from the Old Testament. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, on the surface, that looks like it reinforces the expectation for Jesus to be their next political king. There's a prophecy about the Messiah, your next king, sitting on a colt. Jesus comes into town sitting on a colt. all works together. But John makes a very interesting statement in verse 16. You need to underline this in your Bible. His disciples did not understand these things at first. His disciples did not understand these things at first. So they're watching all of this going, Ah, this is great. We love it. But they didn't get it. They were clueless. They were missing the point of all of it. Even though the the teachings and things were, were very, very clear. But look at what it says. They didn't understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, there's that third word, circle that word, In your Bible. Because it is the hinge of everything in this passage. When Jesus was glorified. Then it says. They remembered that these things had been written about him. And had been done to him. Now we're going to unpack this principle over the next eight weeks. But I'm going to give it to you today. Because it's built off of this word. And and we'll talk about its, its ramifications. It is impossible. It is impossible to reach your full potential if you seek to glorify anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. It is impossible to reach your full potential. And you know what? That doesn't just apply to spiritual things. That applies to your work. Your business, your family, everything that you endeavor to do. It is impossible to reach your full potential if you seek to glorify anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ. The disciples didn't understand these things at first. They didn't get it. And, you know, this is common in Jesus' ministry. So very often when Jesus taught and when he would preach on something, he would do things and he would say things that were just a little bit odd, a little bit out of place. And if you're paying attention, you'd kind of go, what did he just say? Did, did I hear that right? What? Why would he say that? Why would he teach that? That's different from common wisdom or or what we would think or what we would expect. Why did he do that? And if you weren't paying attention, you could miss the oddity, the little unique thing that's here. And if you miss the the unique part of it, you could miss the truth that Jesus was trying to preach. And if you miss the truth that Jesus was trying trying to preach or teach, you would miss God's plan, God's way, and God's message completely. You're going, what is he talking about? Let me illustrate and show you. Flip over to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. And this passage is found, uh, parallel uh, accounts are found in Mark and Luke as well. Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable. It's called the parable of the sower. Some call it the parable of the seed. Either one uh, is appropriate. You probably have heard sermons preached on this. You probably think of a thousand and one ways to apply it because you kind of know what it means. You see this sort of stuff. But I want to try and take you back and try and get you in the context, in, in the mind of the first century listener. And then explain why you know what this parable means. Matthew 13, verse 3, and great crowds, uh, verse 2, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You're like, well, we all got ears. We can all hear, unless you're deaf. And then Jesus, no, 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 that's not what he's talking about. What Jesus is saying there is, listen with spiritual ears. Don't just hear the words I'm saying, hear the message of this parable. So the listener is listening going, I don't get the message of the parable. What? Now, it's hard for you to unlearn what you know because you know that in, chapter, in verses 18 through 23 of this chapter, Jesus explains the parable. And so what you already know is this. In that parable, the seed is the word of God. And the word of God is sown and Satan steals it away like birds would steal seeds off of a path. Well, some people, uh, God's word gets in their heart and they get real excited about spiritual things, but there's rocky soil, they're, they're kind of shallow, they're deep, they don't grow. And so they spring up and they're excited and then they wither over time because there's just no fruit born in their life because they don't have deep roots in God's word. Other people, God's word begins to work in their life and it begins to grow, but then the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and all these things that Jesus describes, it distracts them, it chokes them out like thorns would choke out a seed and they don't produce fruit. The point is these kinds of seeds don't produce fruit God's words not producing fruit in people's lives but for some people God's word takes root they believe it they hear it they study it they understand it they apply it and it produces fruit in their life 160 or 30 times and we go got it move on you missed it you ever think about why there's an explanation of the parable it's because Jesus told the parable and in one of the parallel accounts he looked at the disciples and he said why do you not understand this parable And I think they all went, I don't know, I wish I understood it, but I'm an idiot. Because I heard it and I want to know it, but Jesus, just was the farmer a new farmer and didn't know any better? Did he not take his ADD medicine or something and just, you know, wasn't thinking straight? Or was he just an idiot? A first century listener hearing this story is going to go, there's something wrong with that any farmer that's got a lick of common sense is not going to recklessly and wastefully sow seed in those places jesus that doesn't make sense an intelligent a good farmer who has a plan and desire for uh, producing fruit if he sees a rocky section in the field that he's going to plant he tills the, do, do farmers not till the soil and prepare it for seed They do. And if you see a rocky section, most farmers will go, I'm not going to plant over there. It's not going to grow and produce fruit. Or they say, i got to prepare it. i got to go get these rocks out of here so fruit will grow. There are thorns over here. If I plant in there, they're not going to grow. So I'm either not going to plant there or I'm going to remove the stuff. And no farmer is silly enough to just go out and throw seed on the path where people have walked, where the the dirt is packed down. The seed can't get in and grow. What's wrong with the farmer, Jesus. What's his problem? I don't get it. And so Jesus says, "Let me explain it to you." Jesus always does that. Just look through his life and ministry. There's always this. I didn't make. I don't get it. Another parable. It's in all the parables, uh, pretty much, and you can find it time and time again. The prodigal son. Remember this story? The son comes to his father. Dad, I'll take my money and go. And he goes and he spends it in riotous living. You know, stupid stuff. And comes crawling back on his hands and knees. First century listener, us as a listener hearing this is like, oh, I know what's about to happen here. Oh, yeah. The dad gene is about to come out. There's going to be a lecture. There's going to be a rebuke. There's going to be a bloodletting right here. This is not going to be good when this son gets back to his dad. He's going to put the dad smack down on him. Son, I told you, and you're kind of anticipating this is what's going to happen. When this son gets back to his dad, so you're kind of listening along going, oh, yeah, this is going to be good. And then you hear Jesus say, and the father ran to him, and he hugged him, and he kissed him, and he put a ring on his finger and a robe on his, on his shoulders, and he threw a party for him. And you're like, what? What? Love, forgiveness, acceptance, what? What's Jesus trying to say? He's trying to say, that's your heavenly father. You need to be like him, not like you would do in lecture and rebuke and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, okay. That's John chapter 12. That is John chapter 12. You look at the potential of this passage, what's coming in here. Man, here's Jesus, our Messiah, our Deliverer, our new Passover is here. This is on Sunday, and Friday he's dead. Excuse me? Yeah, tried, convicted, blasphemy, beaten, tortured, dead in the ground on Friday. I'm confused. Potential, the Messiah, all this stuff on Sunday, and he's dead and gone as a criminal on Friday. I, 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 I don't know. What do you do with that? The disciples didn't get it at first. But when Jesus was glorified, how was Jesus glorified? By being resurrected from the dead. Why was Jesus glorified? Because he obeyed God's plan. He did what God wanted him to do. And Jesus didn't seek glory for himself. He sought to do what? Give glory to God. He said, my life is not mine. I want to do what God wants me to do. Even if it takes me through a path of death. that's what it means for me to be obedient to God. That's where I'm going. To give glory to him. Not to myself. When he glorified God, he reached his full potential as Savior of the world. And after that, the disciples got it. Oh, now I see it. They saw everything through different lenses. So let's go back and see that the disciples now had the right lenses on. Jesus comes into town. Hosanna, save us. Save us now. Does Jesus save us? Did he save them? Absolutely. Not from political oppression or oppression, Jesus sets us free from the penalty and the punishment for the sins that we deserve for eternity. We deserve death and separation from God, but we get forgiveness and to be with God forever in eternity. We are saved through Jesus Christ in a way that's way better than just being set free from government oppression. Is Jesus a king? Absolutely. The Bible says he's from the lineage of King David. And God told King David, you will always have a descendant seated upon the throne. Jesus is a spiritual king who will live for eternity. And the Bible calls him the king of kings and the lord of lords. Man, an eternal king is way better than an earthly king who reigns and rules for 50 or 60 years, is it not? All right, what about the whole riding on a donkey thing? Come on, how how do you describe that? When kings came into a city riding on a donkey, it symbolized peace. The more gentle, more humble, uh, weaker animal. And the king's coming in saying, I'm the king. I rule over you. I'll give you direction and instruction, but I want us to work together. Here's what I need from you, expect from you as my people, and I as your king will provide these things. Let's work together. Don't make me come in here and put my thumb on you. You know, your kids in the back seat. Do you guys want me to come back there? I said that one time, one of my kids like, yeah, come on back, Dad. I'm like, oh, you little smarty pants, you know. So, you, you, you know, that's the king. You want me to come in here like that? No, no, king, let's not do that. When a king comes riding in on a donkey, he's there for peace. Jesus brought peace, peace in our hearts, peace, a right relationship with God. But when a king came riding into a city on a horse, he was there for war, And destruction and dominance to say, I'm your king, and this is the way it's going to be. I'm in total control of all things now. And just as a side note on that thing, in the book of Revelation, when Jesus returns at the end of time to make all things right and establish himself as the king, what is he riding at that point? A horse. So that time's coming. It'll be here, but just not here. He's on the donkey. So the disciples begin to get it. What about this new greater Passover, this deliverance and this protection? If you believed in God, you applied the blood, passed over, you didn't die. If you believe Jesus, his words, his teaching and his call to believe that he died to pay the price for your sins and you receive him as Savior and you are Covered by his blood, as we symbolize, and we saw symbolized through baptism. You are covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Bible says, and it washes away our sins, and we're we're new creatures, new creations in him. Now, with the Passover, you didn't die in the moment, but you died in the future, and it was over. Through Jesus, we have an earthly death, but we simply pass through earthly death into eternal life. With him, where there's no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more death, no more tears. Dude, way better than a Passover deliverance in a few years where the Israelites left and wandered in the wilderness and wound up dying as nomads because they disobeyed God again in the future. The disciples got it when Jesus was glorified. When you seek to glorify, Christ and only Christ in all things, then you will begin to see and experience the potential in Christ like you never thought possible. Anyone can count the number of seeds in an apple, but only God can count the number of apples in a seed. What potential lies within you? Dude, I have been so excited about getting into this sermon series to be able to ask this question. What potential lies within this body of believers? What potential is in this church? Let me just share a couple of quick stories to to just give you a taste and and paint a picture of of what God has done in others. That God can do the same and even greater in your life. God, I want to glorify you in my business. I want to honor you and use my business in a way that brings glory to your name, that proclaims the gospel and and, and builds up the church and other believers. So maybe you say, let's just, for instance, want to start a restaurant business. And you realize in a restaurant business, people eat all the time. And so you you realize that and you want to serve people food to eat because that's what a restaurant does. And you think, but I want to be closed on Sunday because I want to serve and worship God for me and my family. And I want my workers to be able to do that, to serve and, and honor God and work in their local churches as well. But the wisdom of the world says you're an idiot. You can't stay closed on Sunday and make any money. You'll be bankrupt. It'll be done. It's a horrible, horrible business model. It'll never ever ever work. Don't do it. That's what they told a guy named Truett Cathy, start a little restaurant chain you might know of called Chick-fil-A. We hate traveling on Sundays because it's lunchtime. We're like, oh, we can't go to Chick-fil-A today. Why did we leave on Sunday? Curse you, calendar. You know, it's, It'll never work to be closed on Sunday. You know what? They're doing okay. Just you know, on that whole bottom line deal. And you know what else? They're using their blessings and their wealth and all that God has given to them to make a stand for Christ and promote causes and things for the glory and the sake and the honor of Jesus Christ. Even when it's unpopular, even when it goes against political correctness, they do that. You know, the crazy thing about it is people will will tell you all kinds of horrible, awful things about them in the media, and they'll be vilified. Listen to me. Don't believe everything you see and hear and read in the media, because it's not true. Can I get an Amen. Crazy! The world's not going to get it and understand it. He's doing okay. They're doing fine because they're seeking to glorify God. And said, doesn't matter what the world thinks. Our eyes are on Jesus. You say, I want to glorify God in my family. What's that look like? What do I do? How does it start? Hey, George McCluskey, guy said, I want God to be honored in my family. I want to lead my family. Don't know what to do, but I know I can do this. I can pray. Took an hour every day, eleven o'clock to noon, to pray for his children. Had two daughters two daughters, both married pastors. Those two daughters married pastors, had five grandchildren, four girls and a boy. All four girls married pastors, and the, the, the grandchild became a pastor. Well, they had great-grandchildren, uh, several of them, but two, in particular, two of the boys, one of them was called into the ministry, because that's what now the family tree for George McCluskey does. The other one said, I don't feel like God's calling me into the pastorate. I feel like God's calling me into psychology. People are like... Pastor, God's calling to psychology? Followed that call, was faithful to that in his life, and he started a little ministry called Focus on the Family that each and every year helps equip millions and millions of families to honor God in their home and in their lives and leave a godly legacy. Because a great-grandfather spent an hour a day praying for his children and his grandchildren. Who knows what God can do? In your family, the potential that is there as you seek to glorify Christ in all that you do. What's the potential of this church? What's the potential of those who gather within the walls of this place each and every week? I don't know, but let me tell you a couple of things about this body. Each and every week, we have opportunities for people from the cradle to the grave to hear the gospel and grow and mature in their relationship and their walk with Jesus Christ. It's a great place, great opportunities for spiritual growth and development. Each and every week and month and on an annual basis, we serve and minister people in this community and in this area, both by being there with our presence and our, our hands-on and helping them, but also with our financial resources. And this year, nearly a 100 people from this church, this body of believers, will go on mission trips and endeavors to share the gospel uh, and, and to, to do mission efforts as close as Chester and as far away as India and Cambodia and Thailand and other countries in Southeast Asia where it's illegal to go and spread the gospel and read God's word and study it. There is great potential within this body of believers as we seek to glorify and honor Christ. We have no limits because Christ has no limits. So this morning for our time of response, I'm just going to call us to a time of prayer. That's all I want us to do is say, you know, how do we wrap it? We want to pray, God, help us see the potential that we have as individuals in you and as a church in you. We're going to be here for eight weeks. So God, show us today what it looks like. What, what If we're glorifying anyone or anything other than you, we want to cast that away and focus our, our attention, our effort on you. And I'll tell you this, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you've never believed in Him, been washed and forgiven of your sins, it's impossible for you to experience any of this potential because the Holy Spirit doesn't live within you. You don't have the resource you need to be able to experience any of it. So today, come and find one of our pastors and say, I want I want Jesus in my life. I, I want to give Him control. I I want to be saved I want to experience that new and greater Passover you need to start there but for the rest of us join me in your seats join me at the altar as we say God help me see just get a glimpse of your potential and help me glorify you in all things because Lord I want to live up to my potential in you and for you and I know that if it's glory for me glory for anyone or anything else it'll never happen so Lord help me glorify you above all else you know, think about a seed, that there's potential in a seed. But it's got to be in the right environment, the right climate, all these sort of things. But you know what Paul says in the book of First Corinthians? Only God can make something grow. We can't do it. We don't know if it's a good seed or a bad seed. We can do the stuff, but if it's not a good seed, we don't know. Only God makes it grow. Only God can bring about his potential in your life. Will you work with him by surrendering yourself and doing what a seed has to do and dying to itself? I want to be a seed. I want to be a seed. If you're going to be a seed, you're never going to be a tree. Never going to be a tree. Die to yourself to experience the potential in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for John chapter 12. It is a chapter filled with potential. And, God, I pray that this morning that there have been fires and embers that have been stoked and will begin to burn to help us experience things we never, ever thought possible. It begins and it ends with you for your glory and your honor. So right now, in this moment and in this time, Lord, I pray that you will help us surrender ourselves in our seats at the altar. Lord, we want to come and give ourselves to you. Father, we want to experience the potential in Christ, and it's only in him. So we give ourselves in this time to you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand if you need to respond. Pastors are available. The altar's open. You come at this time.